Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 5. So we'll be looking at verses 5 to 14, but for context, let's begin in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, and I believe this last admonition here is for both believers and unbelievers for different reasons. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we come as children of the light today, and I pray as that we consider this passage, we'd come to a deeper understanding and appreciation of what it means to be children of the light in a world of darkness, a world opposed. Give us wisdom today. And Lord, I pray your spirit would empower me to preach in a manner that is consistent with the gravity and the importance of this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Temple of the Holy Spirit, he tells the story of this adolescent girl uh, who is visited one summer by two of her older uh, cousins who, who really want to introduce her to some sordid things. And, and then they, at one point they, they overhear uh, her, or, or she overhears her older cousins mocking uh, this, this older lady who would always counsel young Christian girls on how to, to stop the advances of carnal young fellows. And, and, and what she would counsel these girls to say is, Stop, sir. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now that'll stop them, I guarantee it. Well, the two cousins thought that was just absolutely absurd. But this younger girl who was a believer was deeply moved by that counsel. The fact that she as a believer, is a dwelling place of God. It, it provoked awe in her. 
The notion that Jesus loved her so much to secure that kind of gift at such a cost moved her, stirred her, fueled her desire to live for him in gratitude. You know, many motivations are given in the New Testament to flee temptation, to put to death our deeds in the body, to live as children of light. There's that one, for instance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that you are the body? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is a motivation to live holy and godly lives. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And then as we saw last week, and we read just a little bit earlier in our passage, uh, sins of malice are improper for God's people. They are, Paul says, out of place. That's another motivation. And so as we come to our text this morning, keep in mind, Paul has moved in our passage from giving us examples of areas in which he wants us to manifest our distinctiveness as children of light in the world. Now he's moved from that to the subject of motivations. What motivates us? Why is it that we ought to live distinctively as children of light in a world opposed? And, and we see more motivations in our passage today. The first we see, we're to be motivated by healthy fear. Look with me in verse 5. He says, for you may be sure of this. Now, when Paul tells me something like this, be sure of this, I'm to take note. He says that everyone who is sexually immoral, he's picking up the language of verse 3, that's the word porneia, that's the umbrella term for all sexual expression outside the bounds of covenant marriage between a man and a woman, that's porneia. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You know, Paul always connects three things. Sexual immorality, idolatry, and judgment. Uh, you see him do it in various places. You see it in 1 Corinthians 6. You see it in Galatians chapter 5. So why does he connect sexual immorality, idolatry, and judgment? Well, for the Apostle Paul, sexual immorality is an ultimate expression of idolatry. Uh, it, it's an ultimate expression of self-will and, and self-worship. And, and Paul says, no, for sure. You can bank on this. You can count on this. There's going to be no one, there's going to be no one, nobody who can stand before God in the day of judgment and say, oh God, I worshiped me, I worshiped my desires, I transgressed your commands unrepentantly sexually, but I also worship you. Paul says that's impossible. There are no one like that. He is saying there is no one who trusts in Jesus alone for salvation 
who also continues to live a life characterized by not trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. It's utterly impossible. Of course, Paul isn't saying that anyone who commits a, a sexual sin or, or, or struggles with functional idolatry is going to hell. And yet, those whose lives are characterized by that as a pattern of, of life and unrepentance, they have no assurance of eternal life. They have no assurance of the kingdom of God. Now, now it bears mentioning even though he doesn't mention it here, that, that even though he only mentions three types of sins here, who will be uh, the kinds of people who will be excluded from the kingdom of God, in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he, he mentions the unrighteous. He mentions adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, women who practice homosexuality, thieves, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Now, now, the reason for this is that the kingdom of God is a righteous kingdom. It's a holy kingdom. It's a good kingdom, which means it's a kingdom that has terms. There are terms to the kingdom. And just like the proto-kingdom, what was the first kingdom we see established is the Garden of Eden, right? Just like the first kingdom... If the image bearers in the kingdom, the subjects of the kingdom, refuse the terms of the king, they have no place in the kingdom. That's the point. A kingdom that Paul describes, notice, as the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, he's not making, uh, he's not making any kind of point that Jesus Christ is less than God. God there is the Father. There's distinction in the Godhead. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, but God's kingdom is expressed through the rule, through the reign, the covenantal presence, the authority of the son of David. We learned that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That would be God's order of his kingdom. It would be expressed through the son of David. And so this kingdom is a kingdom expressed through the rule and the reign of the Messiah, King Jesus. And our salvation is manifested by living on his terms in his kingdom. That's not the way we get into the kingdom. You must be born again to get in the kingdom. You repent and believe to get into the kingdom. But now our salvation is manifested it's revealed by the fact that we now live on the terms of the king. With that said, even as those who have been redeemed, there's a very real possibility in this world to be deceived. And that brings us to verse 6. And he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What are these empty words? It appears that there were those who were saying that you can live a life of greasy grace. Um, to contemporize it, once saved, always saved, eternal security. And, and you, can, you can trust Jesus as, 
as Savior, but you don't have to have Him as Lord. And there was a whole movement of that in the mid-20th century. Um, in other words, lordship was a matter of discipleship, not conversion. Uh, and, and, and Paul says, don't, don't be deceived by that. He is Lord. And so when you come to him, you come to him on his terms. You don't come to him on your terms. He, he is Christ. He is Lord. He is King. And, and, and so he is not fire insurance. Let no one deceive you on these matters. And then he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Do you know what the first doctrine denied in all of Scripture? It's the doctrine of divine judgment. It's the first doctrine that is denied in all the Scripture. The serpent said to the first couple, you shall not surely die. It proved so successful that it became the serpent's go-to strategy. So today, many, many people teach that, that God is too kind to condemn anyone. That's just not who He is. He's love. And, and ultimately, everyone will go to heaven in the end, unless you're really, really bad. Uh, God isn't wrathful. I, I would venture to say... That is what is taught in our mainline churches today. We kind of live in a subculture. So it might be shocking to hear that, but that is what is largely taught today. But remember, our sensibilities are fallen. And that's what we mean when we talk about pervasive depravity. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we can possibly be. But, but every aspect of our being is fallen and affected by sin. Uh, including our sensibilities. And, and our sensibilities are fallen, and therefore they need renewal. Simply put, that notion that God is not wrathful is contrary to Scripture. Paul says this wrath is of God. It's the wrath of God. What is this wrath? Divine wrath is righteous antagonism toward that which mars his image bearers and his creation. But it's because sin doesn't provoke our own wrath that we have a hard time believing that it provokes God's wrath. That, that's the biggest problem for us. Sin doesn't provoke our wrath. So, for instance, it would be impossible to convince anyone, even in these mainline churches, that someone who is passive towards the intentional harming of a young child is good. So, someone who's passive about the intentional harming of a child, you, you couldn't convince anyone on the planet that that person is good. In fact, we would expect goodness in that case to be expressed by anger. Anger would be expressed, or, or goodness would be expressed in that particular situation by anger, and if the person has a, a role of authority, to punish the offender. 
That would be how goodness is expressed in that particular case. We want Hitler to be punished. We want Idi Amin and Osama bin Laden to be punished. And God is infinitely good. He defines goodness. And so he opposes all evil. And and so if we're honest, those who struggle with the notion of divine wrath really aren't objecting to his getting angry. Their real objection is that they don't think that they're evil. That's what it comes down to. They know Hitler deserves wrath. They know Mussolini deserves wrath. But their sins are minuscule in comparison to these atrocious people's sins. Um, On June the 13th, 1973, Billy Graham was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And uh, you could tell Johnny Carson had the highest respect for Billy Graham and he, he kind of joked at him and picked at him a bit, but then he got really serious, more serious than you would normally see in a, in a Johnny Carson interview. And here's what he said to Billy. Do you think that there's that kind of God who would condemn or damn people? That's a kind of a frightening concept. And Billy responded, it is frightening. And it should be. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we have a false concept of God. I love this. You you probably wouldn't see that on a tonight show today. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of righteousness. He is a God of judgment. Jesus used a number of words to describe it. So did the Old Testament. It's called punishment. It's called condemnation. It's called all sorts of things. It's separation from God. And he looked at Johnny Carson and he said, it is something to contemplate. We are taught that fear is very important. I teach my kids to look out for rattlesnakes. I teach them to be careful in traffic. There is a legitimate fear, and we should face squarely who God is. And the language of the wrath of God speaks to who God is. It doesn't speak to all that he is, but it says a whole lot about him. It conveys he is good. He is righteous. He is holy. He is loving. He is just. And that's why sin provokes his wrath. It's interesting uh, that the word here, when it says in verse 5 or or verse 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Of course, the sons of disobedience... Be, are those whose lives are characterized by disobedience. There's no repentance. Repentance is the, the mark of a Christian. It's the vital signs of the new birth. But a son of disobedience has no repentance. 
They never confess sin. They never mourn over their sin. They always are the victim. They're never the culprit. You know people like that. That's who we are naturally. That's who you were. These are sons of disobedience. He says that this wrath comes. That's present tense. In other words, it's not just in the future. It's on them now. And so even though that wrath is sure, it's future, it's certain in the future, there are aspects of God's wrath on them now. It certainly doesn't mean that the, the unrepentant faces all the consequences of their idolatry in the here and now. There is a future judgment. There is a future hell. But that verb here tells us that that wrath is on their sin now. They're paying for it now. Even though you may not be, have eyes to see, they're paying for their sin now. The emptiness, of the, the temporal consequences of such pursuits are beyond anything we can even fathom. They, they are compromising all that they could ever have in this life. Joy, fulfillment, life with God. There is wrath on their sin now. Don't believe the hype. And that's a word to every teenager here. It's a word for all of us. But here's the tension. Hasn't Paul already assured us of our salvation? He's giving us a warning here, and yet he's already assured us. In Ephesians 1.13, he says, Having believed, you're marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. We have security. We, we've been sealed by the third person of the Trinity. It would take something greater than omnipotence to unseal us. He has sealed us. Uh, and, and then in Ephesians 1, later in that passage, he prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order to know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He, he's already redeemed us, hasn't he? Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood. So the wrath has already fallen on the substitute. So how do we reconcile that, our security in Jesus, and the fact that Jesus has already taken the wrath for us with this warning of judgment and wrath for those who are not repentant? How do you reconcile this? Only by recalling that the assurance of our salvation is not a license for sin. And, and if we fall into a life of unrepentance, unrepentance, unrepentant sexual morality, unrepentant greed, idolatry, we would be supplying clear evidence that we are actually idolaters and not worshipers of God. What did John say in 1 John? They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that they never really belonged to us. There are many who make profession of faith and appear to be truly converted, but they, but they depart from the faith. And they reveal in so doing they were never truly 
born again. They were never truly saved. And so these warnings are real warnings, but they are means of perseverance for believers. Real and true believers hear these warnings and we take note, just like a road sign warns us. If you're coming into a construction site, you'll see warning signs to slow down. And those who have eyes to see, slow down. All right? That's what Paul is saying. And yet we're also reminded sin has consequences, even for the believer. God disciplines our sin. And then that's why Paul says in verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them. Who are the them? The sons of disobedience. Do not become partners with them. Those that Jude would describe who pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. To partner with them is to partner with darkness itself. And that's Paul's warning to every believer. So what should it be our relationship with the sons of disobedience? Should we disregard them? No. Not at all. Um, You have sons of disobedience likely in your own flesh and blood family. You have sons of disobedience in the workplace. And so what does he mean here? Do not become partners with them. I would venture to say our relationship with the sons of disobedience should only be with regard to family or our work or for the Great Commission to reach them with the gospel. In my estimation, um, the those are the only relationships we should have with sons of disobedience. If they're in our own flesh and blood family, if we work with them in the workplace, and ultimately we see them as our mission. They are our mission field. And so in verses 5 to 8, Paul is using a warning, but that's not even the greatest motivation he gives us. He brings us in the second part of this passage, to the greater motivation for living as children of light. And that is because we have a new identity in Jesus. And that brings us to verse 8. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. At one time... You were darkness, but now you are light in the world, uh, in, the, in the Lord. And he's going to give you a command, walk as children of light. We are to be motivated by our new identity. So he has used the motivation of fear. And now he uses the motivation that you have a new identity. Now note this language, at one time, but now. At one time... You were darkness. He's not describing a special class of sinner. He's describing every single person here before their conversion, before your conversion. You were darkness. Now, this imagery of darkness and light is used elsewhere by Paul. For instance, in Romans 13, let us cast off the works of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, But God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Colossians 1, he says, We have been delivered from the power of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son of His love. But notice, it's interesting that he doesn't say that you were once in darkness. He says that once you were darkness. It's what described you. It's who you were. You were once darkness. And he says, now, you're not just in light. You are light. In the Lord. Being in the Lord is the difference maker. Being in Jesus is the decisive difference. You see, the me I see is the me I'll be. If I see myself as light, I will be less likely to gravitate to the works of darkness. In other words, this is not only the reason we must change, it's also the reason we can change. And that's why in in the second part of verse 8, he shifts from stating a fact, you are light. He's writing to every Christian. We are light because we've been united by faith to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. So he goes from stating this fact, you are light, to giving a command. Walk as children of light. Why do we need commands? Because our default setting is to walk in the old self. And the old self is darkness. And so we need commands to rescue us every day from our natural default setting. Walk as children of light. In other words, become what you are. Paul does that all the time. He gives us commands to be what we are. Let me give you one example. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven. What is the old leaven? That represents sin and indwelling sin. And and leaven in bread just kind of permeates it, right? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lamp as you really are unleavened. He says you are unleavened, so cleanse out the uh, the leaven. And, And this is so important to understand that in the New Testament, the command to the Christian life is always a command not for you to become what you're not, but for you to become what you are in Christ. You are light. Imagine going through your day with every temptation you face and every encounter with another individual and you see yourself as light. That's a game changer. And that's why Paul reminds us, you are light, now walk in light. Walk as children of light. Now in verse 9, he's going to specify what this walk looks like. Verse 9, he says, For... The fruit of light, light always has fruit. If there's no fruit, there's no light. An apple tree bears apples, right? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. This is the only place the fruit of light, that that term is used in the Bible. But the meaning is very clear. Fruit produced by the light. That is, once you receive new life 
new light in Jesus Christ, God's power works in you to produce characteristics that are found in Jesus. They are the very characteristics, the very manifestations of the life of Christ. And this fruit is comprehensive. Notice he says it's found in all that is good, all that is right, all that is true. So you're going through your life and you see yourself as light because of your union in the light of the world, Jesus. And you know light always produces fruit. Unless the bulb is, is, is out or your power is turned off, every time you flick that switch, light appears and overcomes the darkness, right? Why? Because you know instinctively that light has fruit. Light takes on the domain of darkness and always wins. Light is undefeated when it comes to darkness. And, and Paul says this light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so that's who we are. So everywhere we go, every encounter we have, every temptation we face, we are light. And the fruit of light is all that is good and right and true. Now that word good, interesting, is, is, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. That's the word. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so the fruit of the light is the fruit of the Spirit. It, it, so what is this goodness? It's good-heartedness towards others in contrast to malice. In spite of how they may have treated you, in spite of what you perceive they deserve, goodness. Goodness. Why? Because goodness is the fruit of the light, and you're the light. I love what Dane Ortland says. He says, how we treat others reveals how we really believe way down deep God treats us. How we treat others reveals how we really believe way down deep God treats us. And God in Jesus Christ was good to us, wasn't he? He was good to us. His, his goodness was expressed to us in absorbing the debt we owe so that we might have an inheritance in Him. And that is the fruit of the light. And that's who you are. You're the light. You're children of light. But notice as well, truth. Truth matters. In a culture that does not even believe truth exists, Truth matters. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's the truth. Truth should characterize our beliefs. In other words, every belief we have, we should ask ourselves, does this belief correspond with the inerrant, infallible word of God? If it doesn't, it's an error. It's a lie. It is truth. Truth is the fruit of the light. You are children of the light. It should characterize your beliefs. It should characterize your speech. It should characterize your lifestyle. You're a person of truth. So that what you do behind closed doors, you're just expressing the fruit of the light. 
You are truth. You don't live a life of hypocrisy. There's no double-mindedness. You're the same person behind closed doors as you are in a corporate worship setting. And so in verse 8, Paul calls us to walk as children of light. In verse 9, he specifies the character of this walk. It's in that which is found, which is good and right and true. And now in verse 10, he's going to give us a concrete example. Notice he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I love the ESV. But I just find this to be a horrific translation of this verse 10. First of all, the word try is not in there. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I looked in the original language this week. That word try is not there. There's not many words there. I mean, it's not a hard, not a hard task to find it. It wasn't there. The Christian Standard Bible, I think, translates this better. Test what is pleasing to the Lord. We have a Bible. We don't have to try. We can. We can know what is pleasing to the Lord. In fact, um, to be a child of light is a life which is characterized by seeking to please the Lord. That's who you do. That's who you are. That's what you do. But, but what, what pleases the Lord requires more than human reason and instinct and sensibilities. It requires being a student of what the Lord has already revealed pleases him. In fact, that word discern that we see there uh, in verse 10, try to discern, that same word is found in Romans 12 too. Same word, uh, which you could literally translate, put to the test, examine, approve, uh, Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Testing, that is discerning, that's the word, uh, what is pleasing to God. Uh, Romans 12 says that discern God's will requires the renewal of your mind. In other words, a person who really is seeking to please the Lord has his Bible open, has her Bible open. And in every encounter, every temptation, every event, they see themselves as light. We are children of light, and, and the fruit of that light is that which is good and righteous and true. What would please the Lord in this particular situation? When I'm tempted, or when I am offended, or when I have a decision to make. What would please the Lord, given what he has entrusted to me in his 66-book canon? Which means the better I know my Bible, the better I know what it means to please the Lord. And those united to Jesus, it's our goal to please the Lord in all circumstances. And when we don't please the Lord, we have a mighty person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who's really good at what he does. 
He's been doing it a long time. Who is going to convict you? That's why I tell students all the time, I'm not worried about you cheating in my classroom. Because if you're a Christian, you will not get away with it. Because you are light. You are children of light. And the fruit of that light is that which is good and righteous and true. And if you're living in a manner opposed to that, the Spirit of God will not let you get away with it. He will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will break you. He is omnipotent. You don't fight with an omnipotent person. And if you're not a believer, judgment awaits. So I don't worry about people cheating in my classroom. Children of light, as a rule, seek to please the Lord. And yet Paul is reminding us, he's commanding us to do so. Why? Because we need means of grace. We're going to seek to please something or someone, and that old self will rear its head, and we start seeking to please that which is opposed to the Lord. And so Paul gives us this word, and and that is the, the fruit of the light. But it also means invariably rejecting darkness. That brings us to verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather instead expose them. So in contrast to the fruit of the light, which pleases the Lord, he speaks of the unfruitful works of darkness. There is no fruit with darkness. Imagine a tarp on a lawn. A lawn that has a tarp on it dies, doesn't it? There's nothing green. There's nothing living underneath that tarp because it needs light. Light produces fruit. Darkness is fruitless. It yields fruitlessness and death. And that's why a crucial part of spiritual maturity is about discerning what influences we subject ourselves to. And man, that is harder now than ever. We live in a world with the smartphone and, and Netflix shows and, 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 and access to uh, serial shows and movies that are darkness personified. And, and Paul says here, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, instead expose them. In other words, being entertained by sin is not a neutral act. Here's how it works. I've always found this uh, statement by Mark Dever provocative. Sin, once tolerated, seeks to be accepted. And sin, once accepted seeks to be celebrated. That's, we've seen that in our lifetimes, haven't we? Let me give you another thought from Herman Bovink, writing a century earlier. Herman Bovink died this year, 100 years ago. That tells you his time frame. But here's what he said. The mind entertains the idea of sin. The imagination beautifies it. 
and converts it into a fascinating ideal. Desire reaches out to it, and the will goes ahead and does it. That's how it works, and it begins how? By entertaining it. And that's why Paul says, you have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. You are light. You are children of light, and hence that negative exhortation. In contrast to that, Paul's going to give us a, a positive counterpart. He says, instead, here's what you do. You expose them. You expose them. Now, why do we expose them? And, and I'm going to speak in just a moment, or Paul's going to give us why we're to expose them, and I'll talk about that. But verse 12 tells us why we're to expose these things rather than take part in them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. The sons of disobedience. Paul knows that social convention and fear of embarrassment, fear of shame, fear of losing your place in society can restrain much public behavior. And so when you see a son or daughter of disobedience in a public setting, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip of the iceberg. Because their public behavior has been restrained. There's common grace restraints. There's certain things they won't do in public because they'll lose their place in society. They'll, they'll lose their jobs. They'll lose their reputations. But in secret, when no one's watching, he says it's shameful what is done in secret. He's not describing you, your light. He's describing the sons of disobedience. It's shameful what they do in secret. In this case, it's shameful even to utter what's done in secret. But notice verse 13. But when anything is exposed, and so in verse 11, he tells us to expose them. And now he's telling you why they need exposing. Unfortunately, let me just say this. Rather than exposing them, we're often entertained by them. And I'm convinced the reason we're entertained by them is because we don't walk in our identity. The me I see is the me I'll be. We are children of light. Light exposes darkness. It's not entertained by darkness. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And so verses 13 and 14, as we come to a close here, he's going to give us the double benefit of exposing evil, exposing darkness. And first of all, he says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes it becomes visible. And so, that's a good thing when it gets exposed because darkness hides 
the ugly truths of evil. Darkness hides the ugly truths of evil so that people can't even see the reality of, of, of wickedness. But light makes them visible. Now, now how do we expose it? That's, a, that's another question. We don't do it by being mean. Too often Christians have been mean-spirited and we have used dark tactics in our goal to expose evil. We have to use the tactics of light, not the tactics of darkness. We don't expose it to embarrass. But what do we do? How do we expose evil? We expose it by being counter. So we expose it by our love, by our holiness, by our presence. It's good to be present. We're not to be partners with them, but we're to be present with them. Presence, joy, and grace. And so, you, 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 you discern where God has entrusted what your mission field is. And, and every Christian here has a mission field. You've got to discern where that is. I can't make that decision or make that discernment for you. It may be your workplace. Some of your pilots, uh, you, you know where your mission field is. It's right next to you. For some of you, it may be the classroom or, or the, the school. It may be a place where you work out or, or play golf. But, but that is your, that's your place of mission. And you go there to expose the evil. But you go loving. You go gracious. You go holy. But you are present there. And when you are present, they see joy. They see love. They see grace. They see kindness. They see the fruit of the Spirit. And... Those realities, when those realities are seen, trust me, it opens up doors for conversations. It always opens up doors. They always do. And then you bring your gospel to bear. And what is that gospel? God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is good. And we are sinful. Yes, we are noble. We're image bearers. We matter. We have worth. We have dignity. That's why life in the womb is so precious. But we are sinners and we deserve God's good judgment. And yet God in His grace has made provision for our sin in the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took our cross, who took our judgment, was raised from the grave so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And if you will trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. You will be united to the light of the world. You will become a child of light. That's the gospel that we bring to bear on a dark world. That's what we do. We expose it. Indeed, that's the second benefit. Notice in verse 14, the last verse of this passage, for anything that becomes visible... Is light. In other words, light makes for more light. It, it, it actually transforms what it illumines into light. 
He is writing to Christians. Remember, all the way back to Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He's teaching us what this means, how this looks. In other words, the light which exposes has positive evangelistic power. Anything that becomes visible is light. And of course, we recognize there will be those who, 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 who hate the light. Paul is talking about a particular case here where the light begets light, where, where sinners recognize your light and, and, and they see the ugliness of their darkness and they come under the conviction of sin and in repentance flee to Jesus, the light. And so this is the twofold effect of Christians being light in the world. It makes visible the darkness and it makes light. And then Paul closes with a very well-known admonition at the time, into verse 14, therefore it says, wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So a lot of ink has been spilled on, where did he get this from? Uh, therefore it says, well, there's no Old Testament verse that specifically says this. Um, Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, uh, seem to have similar language, but it's likely a hymn. It's likely an old Christian hymn that Paul is, is appealing to here. Um, but here are the stakes for the children of light. Our light in Jesus begets light, and it overcomes the darkness so that sleepers might arise from the dead. But I believe this last little hymn is a call to both believers and unbelievers. So this is a call to every person here, because you either classify as a believer, a child of light, or one who's not yet a believer. For the believer, it, it, it means we need to be awakened from our spiritual slumbers. He says, awake, O sleeper. Awake, O sleeper. There's so much at stake. You are children of light. Quit being entertained by darkness and expose it. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Do not be partners with the sons of disobedience. There's so much at stake. Wake up, O oh sleeper. The dark world needs you. God has you in a unique, specific mission field. Be light. For the unbeliever, arise from the dead. Now we know theologically only God can raise the dead. Only Jesus can go to Lazarus' tomb and say, Lazarus, come forth. But remember, he creates what he commands. And he is commanding you today to rise from the dead. Arise in Jesus. Trust in his son. Quit putting it off. See the light. Behold the light. Let that light overcome your present darkness. And Paul says, Christ will shine on you. That's Paul's word to every person here this morning. Let's close with prayer.
Father, thank you for this passage. It's a long passage. But we thank you that we can come to this morning and, and confess that we are children of light. Lord, I pray this passage has played a role today, has been a means of grace, teaching us what it means to be light. When we go home today and interact with our spouses, we're children of light. And the fruit of the light consists in that which is good and righteous and true. When we parent today, we're children of light. When we're alone today with our computers, we're children of light. When we pick up our uh, smartphones, we're children of light. When we turn on the television today, we're children of light. When we go to work tomorrow, we're children of light. Give us wisdom to please you as children of light. And Father, for those who are not yet children of light, oh Lord, that they would wake up. And Lord, that they would rise from the dead. We know that only you can raise the dead. But you're willing to do that today. And I pray that you would raise the dead today. That Christ may shine on them. and That they would trust in Jesus alone for salvation today. And I pray that they would even come to me and talk to me about these things. So much is at stake. Inheritance in the kingdom of God, that's at stake. And we ask these things in the matchless name of the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.